But I also think it's fascinating because for years and years, Hollywood has been making movie after movie, documentary after documentary about the blacklist. And for obvious reasons, it impacted them and hurt free speech. It was an embarrassing chapter in our country's history. But I, I think, okay, so if Hollywood is making movies about this era in 20 or 30 years, they're the bad guys. Welcome back to another episode of El Podcast. Today's guest is Christian Toto who is an entertainment journalist, movie critic, and host of Hollywood and Toto podcast, as well as the author of the book, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul, which is today's topic on our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Christian. My pleasure. So in your book, you write, perhaps the most chilling phrase of late finds people mentioning a classic film or a TV show closely followed by a variation of this lament. You couldn't make that film today. Christian, when did you first observe this trend and can you provide some specific examples? I think for me, one very notable example would be the 2008 film Tropic Thunder. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a lot of examples. I would say between the last three and five years, this has been going on in the culture. It certainly is picking up speed. I think the ultimate example, which hasn't been canceled yet, I think maybe because it is the ultimate example, is Blazing Saddles from 1974, the Mel Brooks comedy, which is really an all-out assault on bigotry. They're making fun of racists in the film, but they're doing it in a ways that uses the N-word, which is the dreaded word in our culture, and uses humor as well. So it's done in a spectacular fashion. It's over the top. Mel Brooks is certainly one of our greatest comic minds, so it's not like a hack piece of art. But given all the subject matter involved, given the toxic nature of that word, you couldn't even imagine someone even pitching something remotely close to Blazing Saddles. But there are many other examples. People are attacking Animal House. One scene in particular where John Belushi's character is peeping at a sorority house, looking at the girls as they're changing. It is inappropriate. And it does make him a bad person, but it is still funny. We can laugh at bad people doing bad things. I don't think we need to take that out of our culture, but it's just a quick example of, of how certain people are offended by things in films. And there's this sense that, well, if you're seeing it on screen, if it's a lovable comedian like John Belushi, then we're endorsing it. But I don't, I don't think that's accurate or fair. And I think that really does restrict the comedy that we get. And one of the reasons why comedy lately it has been neutered in a sense. You don't see a lot of great R comedies, raunchy, out of control, those kind of movies like old school, Step Brothers, of course, Animal House, Bridesmaids. You just don't see them as much anymore, in part because people are afraid to tell the jokes they told back in the day. Right. I mean, American Pie in 1999 would be in that genre as well. I mean, I thought that was called acting and people could <laughs> kind of see past that, but apparently not. Yeah. Again, if you see bad people on screen doing things like that, it's not endorsing it. It's not saying this is a good thing. Maybe it's saying it's outrageous or funny. But, you know, at the end of the day, we laugh at the person slipping on a banana peel or falling into a pool. There is something about us hum humans where we react to things in inappropriate ways sometimes. You know, if, if someone told me a really gross joke or an inappropriate joke or a racially charged joke, I might laugh, but it's almost like a... a a release, it caught me by surprise. It, it, sort of a, a reaction that maybe is not healthy on the surface, but we can't help ourselves. Again, it's the pie in the face routine. It, it doesn't mean that's something we should be going around throwing pies in the face at anyone, but sometimes those things can be funny or unexpected or a release that we wouldn't do it in real life, but seeing it on the screen 
it, it gives us maybe an excuse to laugh at it, and then we can kind of go about our daily business and, and hopefully be good, be good people. You mentioned in your book that social media played a significant role in facilitating the rise of the woke movement. In your book, you say, quote, the woke revolution might never have happened if not for social media. It's the perfect vehicle for the movement, a way to bully complete strangers while holding them to often unobtainable standards. Can you elaborate on how social media facilitated wokeism, particularly in, mm. in Hollywood, as that's the topic of today's podcast? Well, you have someone, a celebrity, who says something salacious, and then it gets repeated on social media and retweeted and shared, and people are allowed to comment on it. And then it gets this momentum, and all of a sudden, it's not just one comment. It's spread across the internet, and that has some cultural power to it. And then the powers that be, whether it's Hollywood or studio heads or whoever it is, they may see that and think, oh my gosh, that reflects the real world. There's a problem here. And yet, of course, as people often say, Twitter is not real life. And often it's an exaggeration of what's going on, or even just a few disgruntled people whose voices are lifted up. So for all those reasons, what happens on social media is this magnifying effect can be quite powerful. We take it sometimes too seriously. And we don't realize the nuance there. And also, there are a lot of people who just want to be angry or want to strike back or want to feel they're good and noble and courageous by attacking someone for having the wrong thought. And the, the bottom line is, we all have some wrong thoughts. We all say the wrong things sometimes, especially for radio show hosts or commentators who are just talking day after day, week after week. You know, to be creative, to be innovative, to be thoughtful. Sometimes you have to stretch the boundaries or sometimes you just misstep or you make a wrong connection. There should be some cultural grace there where you don't condemn someone for that. And I think the Roseanne Barr situation is the ultimate example. She clearly has some mental challenges. I think she's talked about that a lot in the past. She sent out a tweet that was gross and racially charged and ugly about Valerie Jarrett, who used to work in the Obama administration, and her entire career was essentially wiped out. Now, it didn't matter that she broke boundaries for women. It didn't matter that one of her colleagues said that she would often go out of her way to hire people of color in the writer's room because she thought that was important. And you would think, well, that would be far more valuable as to who she is as a person as opposed to one ugly tweet. But no, she lost her career. She lost her job. She killed off her character. And Roseanne was no more. And I, I think that's the ultimate example of how these things go way too far. And, you know, it's her fault for putting out that tweet. It was dumb. It was stupid. It was ignorant. There's no defense here. There's no defense anywhere. She apologized right away. But to see her whole life work get annihilated, it, it just seems outrageous, really. Yeah, I mean, I think you you brought up a good point with the social media. If you were an actor in the 60s, you would have had exact moments that Roseanne Barr had, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be on the internet. It wouldn't be forever in mm -hmm. the minds of everyone and out there on a distribution platform. Yeah. And also what happens is, what about a joke you told 10 years ago, a joke that was seemingly acceptable at the time, but the times change and sensitivities change, and it lands differently today. All of a sudden, that goes viral. So a joke you told 10 years ago to a live audience, they all laughed, no one cared, no one was upset. Now, 10 years later, we're all upset about it. It seems inauthentic, and it seems wrong, and it just seems to be held to a different standard. And what we say today could be deemed offensive in 10, 20 years, or maybe even much less. It's this constant purification battle that seems like there's no winners there. And it, it lacks forgiveness. It lacks nuance. It lacks context. And 
for all those reasons, it, it's toxic. It really does hurt people. The idea of injecting propaganda through Hollywood goes back decades. Elmer Davis, the director of the United States Office of War Information during World War II, said, quote, the easiest way to inject a propaganda idea into most people's minds is to let it go through the medium of an entertainment picture when they do not realize that they are being propagandized, end of quote. Do you think Hollywood today plays a similar role in shaping public opinion, and how responsible is the industry for promoting wokeism not only in the United States, but abroad? Well, I think the things that we create in the U.S., naturally go viral or spread across the globe. A movie that's a hit in, in the U.S. is often a bigger hit in China, for example. Certainly, Hollywood screenwriters understand the power that they wield, that they can change hearts and minds. Sometimes they do it in a positive way. Sometimes they do it in an unconscious way. Sometimes they do it in an aggressive way. We've seen many films where the messaging is so powerful, so heavy-handed, it actually hurts the overall impact. If you want to change hearts and minds, that's often not the way to do it, that aggressive approach. I always look back at the show Modern Family. I think it's the greatest sitcom ever. I think it's an amazing sh showcase. The, uh, the comedy is off the charts. The, the cast is sublime. There's so many wonderful things I would say about it. And also, I think that really had a way in helping the country accept gay marriage. And I am for gay marriage. Some people are against gay marriage. But I think when you watch Cam and Mitch over season after season, and you see them as sweet and flawed, but lovable and funny and kind, and you watch them raising their daughter, how could that not have an impact on the culture? I think it was a way where they weren't lecturing us. They weren't wagging their fingers about, you must accept gay marriage. No, it just showed this lovable couple through their trials and tribulations. And I think in that way, they impacted the culture. So absolutely, Hollywood impacts the culture. In recent years, I think, the powers that be have used that potential more aggressively than they have in the past. And I think the best example is late night comedy. It, it's uniformly to the left besides Gutfeld. They don't want to tell jokes about President Biden because they know it could have hurt Biden. That's why they don't do it, even though he is ripe for ridicule and the vice president is ripe for ridicule. But you don't hear those jokes because they know that if they tell them, it could have an impact. It could go viral. It could start a meme. It could create a narrative. And they don't want to have that because they are in support of that particular party. That's Hollywood understanding the clout they have, the potential they have, and then holding back because they know it could have the wrong impact. How did all these networks become so far left? And it just seems like they've really become even more far left, especially since the 2016 election of mm -hmm. uh, former President Trump. It's a good question. I really don't know the answer. I went to art school a million years ago and... If my sense was the artistic mind was more open, more liberal, more progressive in general. It's it's anecdotal. It's just my observations. It does seem to have a a momentum and a a power group think where, and I think Joe Rogan said this far better than I did. If you're a young actor, you're coming into Hollywood and you're having conversations with your castmates or a potential director or someone. And the conversation turns to politics and maybe it's left of center or maybe you're a right of center in your heart. Would you start talking right of center thoughts when everyone in the industry seems like they're already more progressive than you are? That would be career suicide. It would just be a disastrous move. You would either stay quiet or you'd maybe pretend to agree with your colleagues. So I think it's been existing for a while. It self-sustains. And I think there's a lot of pressure on people not to buck the system. I often talk about the group Friends of Abe. It was a group of conservative actors in Hollywood 
and they met in secret. Well, why do they meet in secret? Why could they just go to a coffee house and chat? Well, because they know if they got outed as conservatives, they could lose work. And that's a really strong statement about where things are in the industry, that if you speak out as a right of center person, there could be blowback. And there are examples, Tim Allen's right of center, Kelsey Grammer, John Voight, but they are the exceptions, really. They're not the rule. It seems like back in the day, journalism, that kind of writing was more of a blue collar job. But now all these writers in Hollywood, a lot of them went to elite or, you know, quote unquote, elite academic institutions where they're very highly indoctrinated with this, you could call it, you know, progressive ideology, wokeism, DEI, whatever you want to call it. So it just seems like these, the people that actually write the script or are on TV have been indoctrinated since they were little children in school with this, and, and you're not getting people that actually didn't go to college in these positions. These people, I think a lot of them actually, some of them obviously don't believe it, but a lot of them, they're just so indoctrinated that they think that they're like doing the right thing. You know, they're on the quote unquote right side of history. You know, there's a lot of talk about diversity in Hollywood and for good reason. I think for many, many years, Hollywood has done a terrible job with diversity where you even look at a movie from the 70s or 80s or obviously much earlier, it's mostly white faces. And I, I think that one of the good things we've seen in the last 10 years is that that's changing dramatically. You're seeing a lot more people of color have a lot more opportunities. People like Jordan Peele, it was a comedian. Now he's one of our best directors. What a wonderful thing to happen to open the doors to everyone. That is important. But what about diversity of thought or diversity of projects or diversity of the ideas that flow into a film? You don't get much of that. And you mentioned some of the elite institutions where people graduate from them and then they're in Hollywood. Look at the Saturday Night Live writer's room or maybe like a late night TV show. You think there are any blue collar folks in there? You think any any you know heartland types who have Midwestern values? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And I think if they were there, I don't think they I don't think they say much. I think they just go with the flow because they know what's expected of them. But diversity is great, can be great, but sometimes it's inauthentic because if you have people, you know, a black person, an Asian person, a Hispanic person, a white person, but they all think the same, I don't know how diverse that really is. I was researching how Hollywood got woke because my fiance and I kind of just have a hard time watching a lot of TV shows or movies and today, really over probably the last five years. And I came across your video on PragerU, mm-hmm. and which is how I found your book. But in your PragerU video, you highlight five primary factors as to why Hollywood leans left and has become quote-unquote woke. You cite guilt amongst the actors, the desire for a meaning beyond entertainment, the need for love and admiration, career preservation in an industry that is highly volatile, and the belief that conservative ideas are rooted in hate. Can you explain these five concepts more in depth? Sure. One thing is career preservation. If you're an actor and you want to get more gigs, one of the ways to do it is to use social media to be progressive, to post a black square in solidarity with Black Lives Matter or some other messaging, because that's a signal to your colleagues that I'm one of you, I'm like you, I'm on the same team. And think of me when my when you know my next gig comes around. Also, I think the media does a very powerful job of keeping the status quo, because if you're an actor and you hate President Donald Trump, for example, anything you say will ricochet around to get tons and tons of clicks and headlines. Robert De Niro is a great actor. He's one of our best. But he's been raging against Donald Trump for the last six, seven, eight years. 
So when he says something anti-Trump, it's not really news. It's more like a, you know, a dog bites man story, but it'll often get attention because the media wants to support that message. The media wants to amplify messages that it agrees with. And so that's why you see that phenomenon going on. If an actor wants more publicity, wants to get some headlines, it's an easy way to do it. Those are just two examples of what's going on. And it's a cliche, but there's some truth to it. Conservatives think liberals are misguided and liberals think conservatives are evil. And that's a terrible state of being, but it's often true. And I think that a lot of Hollywood programming confirms that, at least that fat thinking, or emphasizes it. Late night shows would talk about Trump and not just Trump, but his followers who may be, you know, they could be misguided. They could be a people of good faith. They could be smart but they kind of lumped him in together. There was a Saturday Night Live skit that showed a, a Trump-like campaign ad and all the people were talking about how they liked Trump and supported Trump. As the clip went on, one was revealed to be a KKK member. Another one was a Nazi. I mean, that isn't attacking Trump. It's actually attacking the people who think he's a good politician. And we could argue with that all day long. Who cares? That's demonstrative of what's going on and sort of the conservatives are just wrong, but they're evil. Because the KKK and Nazis, last time I checked, were pretty evil. So just a couple of examples of what, what I was talking about in the video. You think if Trump wasn't elected, that like, I feel like once Trump ran, like there was such hatred for him that things kind of really ran off the rails. You think that if he wasn't elected, if he never ran, that we wouldn't be kind of where we're at right now? Or do you think that has nothing to do with, with anything he was an absolute catalyst in so many ways, and I think he changed He changed so much. He changed the culture. He changed pop culture. He changed the beltway. He changed how candidates operate, obviously for good and for bad, at various ways in between. But yeah, I mean, I watched late night TV, which was like left-leaning in general, and when Trump ran against Hillary Clinton, they were all in. They basically wiped out any Hillary Clinton jokes. It was time to mock Trump. It was time to use our pulpits to send the message we want to send. And it didn't change. It didn't change when President Biden took the oath of office. It's been exactly the same way. So that was the pivot point in the culture. There was a story recently that Samuel L. Jackson said that Brie Larson was broken by Trump's election, which is just absurd. She's a powerful actress. She's an Oscar winner. Politicians come and go. The world didn't end when Trump was in office. And yet it broke her. Well, she's not alone. It broke a lot of people in Hollywood. It actually broke a lot of pundits and change the way a lot of people think. I mean, there are people on the right who I've respected for years who I just discount now because I think they've been so broken by Trump and their whole ideology has been shuffled and scrambled by his mere presence. So I think it works in a lot of different ways. But yeah, I think he was the X factor. I think he changed almost everything. You're kind of switching gears to China. You talked a little bit about it in your book. For Hollywood films, the international office is financially more important than at home. In 2021, China had the highest box office revenue in the world at about $7.3 billion. This is more than the revenues of the United States, Canada, Japan, and the UK combined. To gain access to the Chinese markets, foreign films must be approved by the Chinese government, the Communist Party of China. Movies must not disparage Chinese culture, landmarks of the government, and as Hollywood is eager to comply to make money, they will make changes, self-censor. I mean, we've seen John Cena, you know, basically apologize in Mandarin. I mean, he did he have to learn Mandarin for the apology? I would, I would imagine. Yeah. So how much of woke Hollywood is actually influenced by the Communist Party in China? 
It's been very interesting, and there's been a dramatic change in recent years. Everything you said is true. It's a huge market, and Hollywood has done everything humanly possible to appease their censors to gain access to those theaters. For obvious reasons, there's tons and tons of money to be made. Just go to boxofficemojo.com. You'll see the amount of money movies like Avengers Endgame and some of the Fast and Furious films have made in China alone. It's staggering. And I think Hollywood, in a way, you know, I, I say Hollywood went woke and lost its soul. I think they lost its soul in addition by appeasing China in that fashion, by censoring their art, by not speaking truth to power, by looking the other way as China put Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. But this is fascinating. What China has done over in recent years is work with some Hollywood filmmakers and study the Hollywood process to the point where they can make blockbuster-style films nearly as good, if not as good, as we do here in America. And what happened was the Chinese moviegoers said, well, I could watch a U.S.-made movie, but I'd rather watch a homegrown product. So the box office numbers for U.S. films, the ones that do make it into China, have dropped drastically, dramatically. So all of that appeasement, all that kowtowing, all that we're going to censor our movies to get into your market it's not working out the same anymore. It's been a fascinating sea change in what's going on. Will that go back? I don't think so. If I'm an American moviegoer, I may prefer to see American-made movies. And I think that the same is true of Chinese citizens. Nothing wrong with that. They relate to it better. It's their culture. So I think that all the censoring, all the appeasement, all the times they've tweaked movies to make them more palatable to Chinese censors, I think it's having a rather interesting endgame and where they don't make as much money and they've sold their soul, creatively speaking. Chinese companies have gained substantial control in Hollywood, investing in major film studios and acquiring assets like legendary pictures. Additionally, they own the largest theater chain in the United States, an AMC, which has over 8,000 screens across 600 locations. This influential presence allows them to shape the content that reaches American audiences I feel like with TikTok as well, I think a lot of the craziness that we've seen in the U.S. is from TikTok, which, of course, is controlled by the CCP. And then the fact is that they do control these large swaths of studios in the U.S. and have a huge influence. They have large stakes in Sony and Disney, for example. So do you think that they're trying to actually use Hollywood as a weapon against Americans? If they can, they will. There's been stories about how in China, I believe that children aren't allowed to use TikTok or there are some blocks in the country so that young minds aren't being flooded with the images that are from TikTok and similar services. China is very aggressive in its messaging, very aggressive in its propaganda tactics. It makes perfect sense that they would try to infiltrate the U.S. market also to make movies that are more pro-China for their own citizens. So yeah, they understand the power of pop culture, much like we do, but they're even more aggressive about it. They're even more blatant about it. They're more open to censorship, to making sure that only certain stories be made. We have some of that here, but not like China and not with the force and vigor that China embraces. Yeah, they have time limits on how long their children can play games. And their version of TikTok, it's not called TikTok, but they don't have these videos of sexualized women and crazy people in various communities. They show people like learning how to play a violin. So their TikTok is significantly different than the TikTok in the Western world. Yeah, they understand the power. 
and they understand the potential downfalls. This is not my area of expertise, but we've seen studies and reports about depression and youth in decline in the United States. And it, it can't help but tie that to social media to a certain extent, the pressure, the willingness to get likes, the bullying that happens on screen if you're not as beautiful or not as eloquent as you could or should be. It's powerful stuff. I've got two kids and I'm trying to navigate what they see and what they use and what they put on screen. And it's a challenge for sure. It has a dramatic impact on the culture and it's so new, we're still figuring it out, but it, it can be scary. In your book, you mentioned the phrase, go woke, go broke, which we hear often. But then you also say that you know, there's many individuals in Hollywood that are getting fabulously rich off the woke movement. Can you elaborate on this contradiction of the financial dynamics? It's interesting and it's complicated, and I don't know all the nuts and bolts of it. I think there have been a lot of high-profile projects that have been very woke and have gone down in flames, like the last Terminator film, Charlie's Angels, the recent reboot, things like that. A lot of these gender swap movies where they just it's a popular movie with men, they make it another version with women, and they don't perform well, in part because they're just not good movies. So that's part of it. It, it also seems like Hollywood is often okay with losing significant sums of money if the messaging in the particular project is what they want to share. And when you think about any given movie on a given topic, I'll mention there's a movie from maybe a decade ago called Truth. It was about Dan Rather. There was an, uh, a big expose he had on President Bush at the time. It was proven that the documents he used to support the story were fake. He ended up losing his job. It was a, a really a black eye to journalism in general. And then they made a movie called Truth with Robert Redford as Dan Rather, and they made it sound like he was being heroic and he actually had the, the goods on Bush. And that didn't seem to align with the facts, but headlines fade and our memories fade. But that movie's going to be ricocheting around Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. People will check it out on, on their streaming platforms. And in a way, it'll continue to shape hearts and minds and influence people. Certain storytellers know the power of pop culture, the charm offensive it brings. And they're okay with losing some money. Disney right now is suffering body blow after body blow. They're getting tons of negative press. They've had a lot of significant box office disasters. And they've been embracing woke across the board, from the movies to the TV shows to corporate climate. I don't see any course correction there. I think they're okay with those losses. I think they must be making enough money where they could shrug it off. I don't know whether any other example or rationale why. I mean, if you're running a company, I thought you want to make money. But a lot of these large organizations, they have other goals in mind. And for Disney, I think they want to change the culture. And if they're going to lose a few million dollars, if not more, they're they're okay with that. I mean, there has to come a point where they can't lose any more money though, right? You've seen Budweiser with their whole fiasco with the Dylan Mulvaney and they've been, I mean, boycotted for, I don't know, what, two months now. Yeah. You have BlackRock and you got Larry Fink. I mean, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of the BlackRock, came out and or at least he's in the video saying, if you don't want diversity, we're going to force you to have diversity. They're weaponizing people's pension funds and their own money against them. But I would think that they'll eventually just run out of money, right, at some point. Well, we've seen examples of this with Netflix and I guess HBO Max as well. Now it's called Max. Netflix had a lot of woke programming and they were very successful. They were the biggest name in streaming. But in recent months, they've been suffering a bit there. The subscriber rate hasn't been as robust. They've been losing money on certain projects. So they started to cut out some shows that were woke. Meghan Markle had an animated TV series called Pearl that was cut before it even got to the streaming platform. Netflix supported Dave Chappelle, even though he was the least woke comedian around. 
his comedy specials must have done very, very well and were very profitable for Netflix. And they said, well, we're going to stand up to the woke mob and say, hey, we defend free speech. We stand with Dave Chappelle, I think, because he was making them a good living. So there are examples where you're seeing some belt tightening. You're seeing some projects get canceled, even though they were very woke. The show Willow on Disney Plus only lasted one season. I didn't see it, but I heard there was a lot of diversity and representation in, in an overt fashion that some people rejected. And that show actually not only was canceled, but it was it was removed from Disney Plus entirely for some financial gain there. So there are some examples where the, the cost is so much that people are changing their behaviors, but I don't see it across the board. I also don't think that Anheuser-Busch has really apologized for the campaign that caused so much consternation, which I think was really blown out of proportion. It, it became a very easy symbol of folks rejecting this heavy-handed woke agenda. I think Dylan was the brunt of it. In your book, do you suggest the concept of boycotts, so kind of the opposite of a boycott, mm -hmm. where moderates and conservatives can support content and companies that align with their values? Looking ahead, do you anticipate a rise in independent content creators where both the audience and the creators themselves bypass Hollywood? One example you've mentioned in your book is the Daily Wire, where they are producing their own films. And then I think another example would be with YouTubers. For example, Mr. Beast has 162 million subscribers. And his crazy. video, right, it's crazy. And his videos average mostly over 200 million views, which is more than the Super Bowl. And he releases a video every you know, two or three weeks. How do you kind of see this landscape shaking out? In the next, I don't know, we'll say five years or so. It's happening organically. I think there's been much more progress since the book came out. But you're seeing comedians like Andrew Schultz saying, you know, I don't need to be on an HBO Max or a Netflix. I can produce my comedy specials independently and be very successful. He's done that. Uh, Louis C.K., who was canceled for legitimate reasons, he was terrible. He exposed himself to several women. It wasn't like he said the wrong pronoun. He actually did something pretty bad. And he suffered a significant collapse of his career, but he built himself back, uh, you know, based on his existing fan base. There's tons of YouTube channels that are doing just that, tons of comedians doing that with Patreon, with YouTube, with podcasting. So that's happening organically as well. And then you are seeing the Daily Wire, the Blaze TV is getting into the movie game to a certain degree. But yeah, I think if you are frustrated by Hollywood, if you're exhausted by content that's coming out, if you don't support the plan B's and C's, then you don't have much room to complain. If you want to support these different projects, they will grow, they will expand, they will challenge Hollywood. And then maybe Hollywood will see that rise in competition and act accordingly. Maybe they'll start to get more diverse storytellers behind the scenes. Maybe they'll start to counter what these upstarts are doing. So I think that would be healthy for everything. It makes me sad that there needs to be this pirate ship of rebellious content rising up. I mean, that should be coming out of Hollywood. The Hollywood should be aiming for the left, for the right, for the middle, for the woke, for the non-woke, but they've been more focused on a very select audience, and I think they're suffering for it. We're talking a lot about the word woke, and just since we've talked about it so much, can you give your definition of it or how you kind of see that word, what the meaning really means? Yes. It's a very complicated word, and some people have stumbled upon it, and I think there's a good reason why people stumble upon it because it it expands, it contracts, it, it's very nuanced at times. It can be overused. 
I, I think for me, the core is that it's about power. On the surface, woke is about making the world a better place, righting past injustices, giving an opportunity to people across the board based on their talents. And given that description, I think we'd all raise our hands and say, go for it. We want a better world. We want people to treat each other better. But it really isn't about that. It is about power and it is about control. And you could see it through obvious examples. And my favorite is, you know, Morgan Wallen is a country Western superstar. And he was caught on tape saying the N-word. And he wasn't using it against a black person, which would have been really just gross and vile and racist. He just said it. He said it. And his career collapsed overnight. He lost record contracts and radio stations wouldn't play him. And he couldn't have pop up on an award show. A significant, sizable backlash against it within the industry. And you could agree or you can disagree, but that was a woke reaction for sure. And yet also we learned that Hunter Biden, the son of the president, has used the N-word multiple times in different text messages. And absolutely nothing happened to him. Why? Well, one is a country Western singer. He's white. He's male. He's in an industry that is seen as being more backward, progressively speaking. And one is the son of a president who is a Democrat. That's it. That's the difference. So if you are woke and you really want the world to be a better place, you would be outraged at both. I mentioned before about Roseanne Barr being canceled. Well, Ezra Miller has a rap sheet a mile long. The actor has been accused of grooming not one but two people. Miller has attacked a woman in the past who was caught on video. I think there may be one more than one occurrence. That actor has done a lot of very bad things, not online, not with a tweet, in person. And yet Miller was still part of the Flash movie. It came out. The actor walked the red carpet like nothing had happened. So where is that outrage? If we are woke, if we are uh, you know, seeking a better world, why, why didn't Miller get punished? It's about power. It's about control. It is not about making the world a better place. And that's a very long answer, but it's like I said, it's not an easy word to define. It is often overused. Yeah, I think for me, and I think just a lot of people in general, it's the hypocrisy that bothers people. And I know in your book, you used Alec Baldwin as an example. And this, of course, your book came out before the whole shooting situation. Yeah. And he, but didn't that whole thing get dismissed? I mean, as well. And it's like, I think, like you're saying, kind of career preservation, you align yourself on that side and you can pretty much get away with murder in the case of Alec Baldwin, you're literally shooting someone and getting away with it. And even before that tragic shooting, he had said horrible things. He had acted aggressively toward people. He had done enough stuff. We think, well, if cancel culture is real and the woke ideology matters, then you would not have him working consistently. Listen, he's a very good actor. He's very funny. He was brilliant on 30 Rock. He's a talented fellow, and I don't necessarily want him canceled but he accidentally shot someone to death and really hasn't suffered any significant consequences. They went back to finish that movie. He said other projects lined up. He's in good shape career-wise. And yet he's insulted gay people. He's insulted black people. He's been physical with other people. In an altercation on a plane, he got into a fight over a parking spot. He's had this whole record. He's a combustible guy. That's who he is. But he's not canceled. Hmm. It's weird. Right. If he was a conservative, though, he would have been canceled decades ago. I would think so. I would think that is a, a true statement. We have to go to the multiverse to find out the, the conservative Alec Baldwin and how his career goes. But uh, we've seen just that. And one of the things that Roseanne Barr did to bring on her downfall was that she began to support Donald Trump. And she gave 
Trump supporters a voice on her sitcom, Roseanne. And that put a mark on her back. And so that when she did that horrible, awful, gross tweet, it was game over. Yeah, the current woke movement has led to debates around cancel culture. How would you define cancel culture and what impact do you think it has on creative freedom and artistic expression in Hollywood? I mean, cancel culture means you've done something wrong and then you no longer work in your professed field. And like I said, you know, there are examples that I don't think really align with cancel culture. Harvey Weinstein was accused and committed to raping women, mistreating women. That's not cancel culture. That's a guy who broke the law, behaved like a monster, and is facing the consequences. And even with Louis C.K., certainly a far less crime, but he was gross and inappropriate and sexual with women who didn't want that to happen. And he faced the consequences. But then you have what happened to Roseanne Barr, Kevin Hart, you know, jokes resurfaces from a decade ago that seemed to be homophobic. And then he lost the gig hosting the Oscars. That's the cancel culture, which is so frightening. What cancel culture does is it makes everyone afraid. It makes them self-censor. You can't discuss challenging material, sensitive topics in ways that art should discuss. If a comedian goes on stage and talks about the trans ideology and does it with humor and does it with insight and does it with wisdom and does it with curiosity, then that should be acceptable. But I think most comedians are going to go way, way far away from that topic because they know they could be canceled. They're not as good as Dave Chappelle. They don't have the name recognition of a Dave Chappelle. So why would you even go there? And I think there are many other topics they just don't touch because they don't want to get canceled. They don't want to have their careers impacted. I talk to a lot of comedians, and a lot of them say that the ones who are toughest against them are their fellow comedians who will rat them out, who will put pressure campaigns on to get them banned from a show, banned from a venue. That's cancel culture. It's not healthy. It's toxic. It's capricious. It's very bad for a free expression, let alone the culture at large. Yeah, what's the reason? Why would you rat out a comedian? One of the take-home messages I got from your book when I was reading it was, I think if you are woke, you can get away with having less talent. You don't have to be a good writer. You just kind of check the boxes, throw some people in the role, and you're and you're done. I mean, what does this say about current day America? Are people just less talented because they're so brainwashed in school? They don't actually have the skills to be a prolific writer anymore and they have to resort to just checking boxes, you know, having some template in front of them. Why would you rat out your fellow comedians? Are you jealous of the competition and it's just a way to eliminate competition or do you really think that they're doing something wrong? What's the reason? I, You know, I don't know. It's funny. I interviewed a comedian recently. His name is Mike Binder on my podcast. We had a great conversation. He's really Really interesting fellow. He's also directed some good films, including Black or White and The Upside of Anger. And I asked him about that. I said, I've had comedians tell me that other comedians are brutal to them. You know, what's your experience? He said, yeah, I've had the same thing. He once promoted Jim Brewer, who's a Saturday Night Live alum. And Jim Brewer has been talking about COVID and the lockdowns and some of the hypocrisy within that movement, within those regulations in ways that don't fit with the mainstream. But it's very funny, it's very effective, and it reflects a point of view. And when Mike Binder promoted that special, in particular, he had his fellow comedians say, what are you doing? He's a monster, he's this, he's that. Well, no, he's a comedian, and he's funny, and he's sharing a point of view. So I asked Mike, I said, well, why do you think they said that? He said, I don't know, I don't think they're well-informed, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. But, you know, I can't get in their heads. I'd have to speak to them one-on-one to find out why they would do that. But yeah, the, the, the comedians against comedians. And, you know, 
I don't think we have less talented people now than before. I do think you can be less talented and be successful because you do check all the right boxes because you hit the same targets, the approved targets. You see with late night, they call it clapter. That's not really funny stuff. It's just stuff that is aligned with a certain group think, with a certain narrative, with a certain mindset. And you get you get the applause, you don't get the laughs because it's not really funny. It's just a comedian saying things the audience wants to hear. In your book, I think you kind of ended on this note, but you mentioned that there were historical moral panics, such as the rush to ban alcohol, the communist fears that we had, and what was it, the 1950 Hollywood with McCarthyism. And this is your quote, that people grow and change. It's going to take a while to shake out, but it will. It always has. Yeah, kind of saying that woke will fade like the prohibition faded and the McCarthyism faded as well. When do you foresee the current woke era of Hollywood coming to an end? I feel like you kind of alluded to saying that it probably won't come to an end. Do you really think we're going to be living like this in a decade from now? I don't know. I think the quote you mentioned from the book was from John Nolte, who is a contributor to Breitbart News. And I think he was more optimistic than I am, honestly. I'm not sure. I don't think this fades overnight. And every time I think there is some legitimate progress, I think we take two steps backwards. So I, I don't see it in the foreseeable future. I, I think there are other things going on in the culture which will prevent it from going away. I think we're seeing censorship across the board in political matters, in spreading news, in having debates in our culture that have nothing to do with entertainment. And I think as that gets worse, and I think it is getting worse... I think the chance of Hollywood coming to its senses uh, lessened. If we had more free expression, more debate, more outrage, more ability to counter certain narratives, then this period of our pop culture lives would end quicker. But I don't think we're seeing that right now. Since the book came out, that was John's point of view. But I think I'm even more pessimistic now that it's going to end soon. I think it's going to be here for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think the Twitter files were a pretty big revelation into that. And I think one of the more you know toxic things everyone knows about you know, I call it shadow banning or censorship, but it's the amplification. It's like Dylan Mulvaney, for example. I mean, he's got, I think, something like 10 million followers on TikTok, which is more than Kim Kardashian, for example. And it's it's the content that they shove down your throat, which, I mean, it may, people think like, oh, this whole LGBTQ plus whatever is like really popular when it's not, but because they're able to amplify this, like they just have the, the whole algorithm, like, you know, especially with AI, I mean, we're seeing ChatGPT. Actually, you know, I actually use ChatGPT hours a day. It makes me way more efficient. But it's amazing how, especially like I was, you know, kind of putting stuff in for our podcast, and it would be like, oh no, like this guy's incorrect. Like, and it's like I'm just like, no, like just check it for grammar. Like I'm not asking you for mm-hmm. for some like you know silliquy or where you know. I remember I had to tell him like, hey, Chat, stop giving me a sermon. Just, <laughs> just, just literally correct it for punctuation. Yeah, yeah. And That's I feel funny. like, but when AI is is woke, I mean, I feel like we're we're kind of living in a twilight zone. Well, I think you you stumbled upon what I think is the bigger fear, is that the Twitter files should have been the story of the year, if not the decade. And what did the mainstream media do with that story? Ignored it or downplayed it or dismissed it. So many, many people who still trust the news think, okay, it was a nothing burger, no big deal. 
even though that should have been a powerful moment in our culture that showed what was going on behind the scenes, revealed censorship, revealed just how narratives in our culture are maintained or dismissed. But that didn't happen. That's what I was referring to earlier, where when the culture at large is having significant issues, when free speech is being stepped on in that fashion, then what chance does Hollywood have to bounce back to its former glory? That's what makes me so pessimistic is I'm seeing the bigger picture and it ain't pretty. Right. And then I'm going back to the Twitter files, but then you get Matt Taibbi having the IRS knock on his door while he was it basically the week that he's testifying in Congress against. Yeah. That should be the front page story of any every newspaper in the country. That should be number one. That moment should be on the tips of everyone's tongues. And I'm trying to think when the late night shows went on strike because of the writers going, you know, the, but that should have been mentioned there too. You know, that should have been a joke. It should have been a truth to power moment. And I guarantee that you could walk up to people in the street and ask them at that question and nine out of 10 wouldn't know what it is. But I guess we have to hope that the 10th person is enough to kind of spread the word and to help bring about change because that's a, that's an abuse of power on a scale that should scare everyone. Yeah, that's kind of like the Watergate, right? I mean, it's com- comparable, I would think, or 9-11 in, in a different way. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Twitter files re- reveal that there was election interference. It was us. <laughs> it was right. big tech. It was us, you know, yeah. I, I don't care whether you love or hate Trump. You know, we, we, we want to get all the information, and then the voter can decide who to put the lever for. But if, we're, if there's a big breaking story that could impact the election— and the media ignores it and dismisses it, and big tech says you can't even talk about it, well, then the election is 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 compromised by that. What was the first woke movie that you, what year was it? What was the first movie you saw? You're like, man, this movie just years ago never would have even been released to the public. Was there a moment where you were watching a movie and you're just like, what, you know, what is this? You know, I don't know if that comes to mind, but the movie Ghostbusters with the all-female reboot from 2016 that felt like a moment where things changed. It changed in that the people on camera included a scene. They were mocking the trolls in real life. They kind of used that moment on screen. The mainstream media went to bat for the movie, sight unseen, and basically saying, if you didn't like the trailer, which was not funny, that you were a misogynist. So I, I think that moment was, it really captured this whole movement because A, the movie wasn't very good. B, the movie bombed. It, you know, it actually made some money, but not enough to match its budget. And C, the media circled the wagons for it. So I think you saw a lot of the things that we see on a day-to-day basis now happening within that movie structure. It was the gender swap. It was the fact that it wasn't very good. It was the fact that it actually went lost money, the get woke, go broke syndrome. It was the media rallying to its side instead of just reporting the news. I'm a right-of-center entertainment columnist and reporter and I'm transparent about that. But if you're writing for the Washington Post and saying that if you don't like the movie's trailer, you're misogynist, well, that's that's stepping over a line or two. But we saw a lot of that when that movie came out. So I think that was the moment where a lot of things changed and not for the better. Yeah, we, we kind of talked about McCarthyism in the 1950s, but you basically had conservatives censoring far lefts for thinking that they were, they were communists. And then what happened was you had the 1960s where you kind of had like this correction where then all of a sudden the 60s was like this hippies and this decade of love, sex, drugs, et cetera, but far left. I feel like now this is kind of the inverse right now. Do you think we're going to have, say, maybe the, the 2030s will just be the complete correction? I talk to a lot of young people 
now that are hyper conservative. Normally, people when they're younger, they're liberal, they're idealistic, right? I think the best of humanity. Then, as reality smacks them in the face, I mean, what, what, what's the expression? A, a conservative is just a liberal mugged by reality. And where you actually have twenty-year-olds that are hyper conservative, do you think that this is just going to be the opposite of what happened during the nineteen fifties with the McCarthyism in Hollywood? Well, I hope we do see the pendulum swing back toward more free speech for sure. Like I said, I, I am pessimistic it's going to happen soon, but it could happen in maybe 2030s, a more realistic date for sure. But I also think it's fascinating because for years and years, Hollywood has been making movie after movie, documentary after documentary about the blacklist. And for obvious reasons, it impacted them and hurt free speech. It was an embarrassing chapter in our country's history. We shouldn't have this sort of thought police where you couldn't be a communist. You know, we sh you should be whatever you want. I mean, if you're infiltrating the government, that's another system. But if you're a screenwriter who happens to be a, a far left soul, then God bless you. Who cares? That's not, that's not a crime. But I, I think, okay, so if Hollywood is making movies about this era in 20 or 30 years, they're the bad guys. And I, I think that will come as a shock to many people. And I, I don't think they realize that yet, but they are the villains here. They're the villains of the story. And I hope we get to see those movies because it'll mean that the wave, the panic has ended. And I think these stories should be told. Ever since my fiance and I started this podcast, I find it interesting is I've had so many videos taken down, whether it's on YouTube or TikTok, and they're fairly benign videos. My fiance is from the Philippines and she had a video taken down on TikTok and YouTube for saying that her mom found the term birthing person offensive and, you know, these shouldn't be called mother, but should be called birthing person. And that video was taken down at TikTok as well as, as YouTube. I feel like we kind of live in like 1980s kind of pre-independent Russia right now. And yeah, if you, if you tell people that aren't really content creators, they kind of look at you like you're almost crazy. My fiance was pretty liberal and now she's pretty conservative after all the censorship that we faced. What is the future of freedom of speech and censorship going forward? I don't know. I think freedom of speech is everything. I think it is the battle of our times. And the work that I do, I, I uniformly support any artist who supports it. I don't care who they vote for. I don't care if they're far left or far right. I think the battle is so significant for all the reasons you mentioned. We saw this during COVID. If you said it was made in a lab. It wasn't made in a wet market. You might get censored. If you said that the vaccines weren't fully effective, you might get censored. Well, that was correct. They were censoring factually correct information because it was inconvenient. That's the worst thing. That's the absolute worst thing, especially in a Western society. You don't censor those thoughts. And for everyone who says, well, you got to censor Joe Rogan because he's got misinformation. Yeah, I bet there is some misinformation on that show. Have you seen The View? <laughs> Have you seen it on a daily basis? It's the dumbest show on TV. There's so much misinformation there, it could choke a horse. And no one is calling for that to be censored. Why? So again, the woke is wildly inconsistent and hypocritical, but so are those who were the censors of our modern age. When were the censors the good guys in history? I'm not sure I recall that period. So yeah, free speech is everything. It's the biggest battle of our time. And if we don't have it, we're in significant trouble. And all the big tech and all the ways that we can communicate with each other and spread information that they keep clamping it down, we're in a heap of trouble. I'm pretty optimistic personally, so I wasn't until a couple of years ago. And now I, I, I see doom and gloom. I mean, the press is not on, on free speech's side. Academia isn't. Hollywood isn't. 
uh, those are major cultural forces that are working against, and that's a terrible situation. Yeah, when, when you're you're talking about you know like Joe Rogan, I mean he had Doctor uh, Robert Malone on, who is what has like nine patents on the mRNA technology, and then you have people fact checking him. I saw in an interview where he's like, "Yeah, it took him a long time to fact check me because like who is going to be." qualified to fact check the guy that actually invented the but that's that brings us up to the next point like who is the fact checker like who's actually fact checking you the one hope is that they're that the streisand effect is in full blast and that's it was a case where i think barbara streisand tried to suppress a photograph of her property or something like that and of course interest in it skyrocketed so i think that the more that they try to shut down certain voices certain opinions the more people are hungry to hear them the more people will go to places like Rumble or check out other avenues to get to that information. And it's why Tucker Carlson, I don't agree with everything he says, but I think that's why he's become this cultural force because he's saying inconvenient things again and again and again. And that's made him a hero to many because we hunger for that. Even Robert Kennedy Jr., I think a lot of his stuff is offline, but because he's so bold and because he keeps getting censored, he's becoming a folk hero of sorts. There's something in our culture that wants to let people speak and let them be heard. But if the cultural forces against them get so much power, then nothing will stop them. How did you become a movie critic? What was your passion for getting into this? Well, it's, it's so funny that I am who I am today because this is not remotely the plan. I just loved movies, loved them to death. My dad introduced me to them as a kid when I was in high school and I wasn't exactly dating a lot of women. I would go to the movies with my buddies. I mean, it just was what I loved so much. So when my art career floundered, I thought I should be a film critic and I should get into journalism. So I got into journalism and slowly elbowed my way into film criticism. And then along the way, I became right of center. It was after the 9-11 attacks. I was in DC at the time. And then as time marched on, I'm just reacting to the culture. My peers are almost all to the left. And so I think that a voice like mine is important just because to represent half the country. And then the more I see attacks on free speech, the more I embrace free speech and the more I try to lift up artists who are of like mind. So that's how I am today. But this was not the plan. I just wanted to review movies. I just love movies to death. I want to talk about them. I want to share my two cents. I want to steer people to the good ones and steer them away from the bad ones. That was my entire goal, full stop. But the culture changed me. Culture changed me dramatically. I, I am nowhere near who I once was. Yeah, what do you, what year do you think was kind of the pinnacle for movies? For me, I think 94 was a great year. That was the year you had Forrest Gump, Shawshank Redemption, Leon the Professional came out that year as well. I know there's quite a bit more that came out in 94, but 99 I thought was a good year. I mean, you had American Beauty, American Pie, you had Star Wars... Uh, fight was that Fight Club was that or was that ninety eight? Was similar to, around there, around there, yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't real. I, I just on a personal level, I don't break it down by years. I think sometimes decades can be a very interesting barometer. The seventies were this indie rogue, where the artiste would emerge. I, I, I feel like there was a really strong independent voice there that mattered. The eighties have a soft spot for me. It was my teen teen years, early twenties. Yeah. And I, I think for me, my bottom line is I, I look at back the last decade or so of movies and there have been some fun ones and I love the Avengers and some of the best superhero movies, but it, there are very few movies that really jump out at me as being spectacular or memorable or like I can't wait to watch them again and again and again. 
like we do with the Shawshank Redemption or The Godfather or Goodfellas or Road Warrior or Jaws or Dog Day Afternoon. I feel like we're not making as many of those movies as we once did. And even the best picture winners the last multiple years, God, they, they, they just, they give me shoulder shrugs. I don't, don't want to see them again. Don't think they were worth it. So I don't know. I'm a bit pessimistic there, but you know, there's so much content now and there's so many great TV shows. So while I think movies are floundering to a certain degree, there's a lot of great streaming content shows that were mesmerizing. Breaking Bad, I thought was just at its best, as good as it gets, just just spectacular entertainment that is as good, if not better, than any movie. Yeah, I was reading an article from 2019 titled The Chinification of Hollywood, and here's just kind of a quick passage where it just says that what tends to translate well across cultures is big-budget action features that are short on meaning, but long on special effects, stunts, and the spectacular... Basically, the article goes on to say that comedy is dead, of course, because it just doesn't translate along different cultural and languages, and that he kind of blames Michael Bay uh, for uh, the Transformers, and just saying that what gets greenlit for blockbuster production does not always follow a domestic logic, but rather an international one. And then it goes on to say that a lot of the sequels that weren't very good at least domestically in the U.S., did very well internationally, mostly China. With you mentioning earlier how China kind of has its own version of their Hollywood, if these movies aren't going to break into the Chinese market, do you think that we will see a future where we have less sequels and just stupid action movies and kind of get back to having some good comedies and other movies that are more designed for the American audience versus a bland action that can be watched by anyone? Two, two competing thoughts here. One is I think that the roller coaster ride of a movie is what we care about the most right now to go to theaters. Otherwise, we'll just stay at home and watch stuff. But I also think Hollywood has got to get its act together as far as reducing the budgets of these movies. When they can have a movie like Little Mermaid, which makes hundreds of millions of dollars and still think we're going to lose money on this because it's not making enough because we sunk... 200 million here, we sunk 100 million there. It's crazy. They've got to figure out a way to make similar stories at a fraction of the budget. That way it, it reduces the risk that means they can tell more original stories. And it's doubly true with comedy. A comedy shouldn't cost more than five or $10 million. You know, Maybe if an actor is, is a superstar, you want to pay him or her the money. But budget-wise, there's no special effects. You should be able to tell that story reasonably cheap. And there are a lot of indie filmmakers who do that on a shoestring budget, and they make good-looking movies that are smart and effective and powerful. I would just say, listen, teach us the ropes because you guys are spending too much money. And I mentioned the Ghostbusters movie. That movie made, I think, about $110 million, and it lost at least $70 million. That's unacceptable. It was a comedy. Ratchet down the special effects, make it a little more humble, more streamlined, and that movie would have turned to profit. It's crazy. We got Christian Tauda here who is the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. So I have two final questions. Where can people find you, get a hold of you, where you want to direct people? And then what is a final thought, parting thought that you want to leave the viewing and listing audience with? Well, I'm the host of the Hollywood in Toto podcast. And that show often talks to people who are canceled, who are speaking up against the status quo or just bucking the system in general. I've been really happy with the voices I've been able to share on that particular show. And on Twitter, I'm at, at Hollywood in Toto. You can follow me there. And I think the bottom line is that 
be like me in that I used to be a passive soul. I used to just, you know, I'd, I'd go to work, kiss my kids, vote every two or four years. But those days are over. We all have to take part in the culture right now because it's slipping away. And it could mean throwing $10 to an independent artist to help him or her get their project off the ground. It could be voting for a politician who is for free speech, not against it. Or it could just be sharing some of the horrible stories we're hearing about censorship with a friend who is unaware of what's going on. I think that's maybe the most powerful message I'd love to send because there are so many good, kind people who don't know what's happening because it's being kept away from them. And they've got to learn more and they've got to be aware. And hopefully they've got to be outraged. If they're not, I think we're all in trouble. Yeah, it's, it's sad. I agree with that. And then this final question, I read over 100 books a year and people are always like, oh, what's your favorite book? And it's it's hard. I could give you a top top 10 hmm. easily, right? But to name just one would be really hard. But as someone that's a movie critic, I don't want you to give me, say, your favorite movie of all time. But if someone were to be like, hey, what's what's some movies you'd recommend? I always try to recommend things that aren't talked about all the time. When it comes to horror, my favorite film the last 20 years is The Descent. I thought that Jojo Rabbit did get a lot of acclaim, but I thought that was a wonderful film. Uh, gosh, you know, I, it, it's hard to think of things that are flying under the radar. I mentioned one that Blaze TV just came out with a new film called Reopening. It's a great mockumentary about a theater trying to put on a show during COVID. So I, I think the hardest part of my job, this is going to be silly, is that whenever I'm asked a question about picking a movie, my mind goes blank. It's so strange. I I have so many things on the tip of my tongue, but when it comes to like, what, what have you seen recently that you loved? I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the, that's the hardest question in the world. But if you check out my website, Hollywood and Toto, you'll find some recommendations there for sure. But hey, just ask your friends what's new, what's different, what's catching people by surprise. I think I think you'll get some great answers there too. Yeah, I think for me, like when it comes to books, it's also like, what mood are you in? Oh yeah. Oh, so, right, right. But yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for, for joining us and hopefully we can do it again. Love to, thanks. That is it for this episode of El Podcast. And once again, if you guys aren't subscribed yet, please consider subscribing. And find us on Rumble, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as well. We thank you all dearly for watching and listening. I will see you on the next episode.